0: Hello Plastic Pills listeners, we're here with a very special guest and friend of the channel, Ben Burgess, who is the author of Give Them an Argument, uh, and most recently Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a Critique of the Contemporary Left. Uh, Make sure you check that out with Zero Books. So today we're here to talk about liberty, uh, and in particular, libertarianism. Uh, And rather than just spending an hour or two sitting there, dunking on our favorite bad libertarian arguments, we decided to actually go for the gold standard, by talking about a little book uh, by Jason Brennan, uh, which is essentially intended as an introduction to the libertarian tradition. Uh, And what I think is very interesting about this book is, unlike a lot of the polemics out there, he actually describes it as kind of an olive branch to those who don't actually like uh, libertarianism all that much. Uh, In the intro, he talks a little bit about how he has this democratic aunt, uh, who is hostile to everything she thinks libertarianism is about, Uh, And the book is in some ways a manual uh, for her. Uh, It's called Libertarianism, What Everyone Needs to Know. Uh, So there's a lot of different arguments that are put forward in this book. uh, And we'll probably get into the weeds with a lot of them. Uh, But before we dive into that, I was just thinking um, I wanted to hear what you guys have to say. So, Ben, what are your thoughts? I know you're a huge Brandon fan. (laughs) Yeah. I mean,
1: to to put my cards on the table here, um, you know, Brennan is somebody who I probably first encountered yeah I might have first seen him when he was writing for Bleeding Heart Libertarians um, which I mean he might still do but you know it's been a long time so I looked at that uh blog uh but uh I, I I really I think first started to be aware of who he was uh when he was writing a bunch of stuff basically um opposing the drive to organize adjuncts to uh you know so so they get paid uh living wage and get health insurance and all that stuff. And uh, as somebody who was in exactly that position at the time, uh, that's uh, that, that, you know, uh, you know, he earned a eternal place on my shit list, you know, uh, because of, uh, uh, because of that. You know, as as like you know, sort of this this cartoonish figure of uh, of a very comfortable tenured professor, uh, who, was, uh, who was opposed to uh, to efforts to get a more just deal for adjuncts, and would make sort of specious arguments about how there are other things that you could do for the with the money and blah blah blah. But I mean, I I do so that said, right? I mean, I I do really dis you know, I mean, I I feel great dislike for him in, in my heart in my heart as a human being, uh, because of that. Uh, and also, you know, some of the other stuff that that I've, I've read by him, you know, I've often found a lot of the ways that he argues to be to be very smug and very glib, you know, as, as far as characterizing like lefty arguments that he's opposed to. And, you know, none of that makes me feel any more warmly towards him. That said, uh, I I do think that in some ways, like this is like grading on a curve of libertarian books i mean this 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 is actually uh this is actually kind of okay in some ways like 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 brennan is the sort of person who i i would most like to engage with on these issues because um even though i mean i will say right at the outset i found a lot of the consequentialist economic arguments uh that uh that he uh that he makes in this book um you know like pretty rushed and and a little sloppy and you know and, and uh way too a priori uh but uh he's also like a philosophically sophisticated defender of libertarianism who is uh who's alive to at least some of the problems and ambiguities about the things that he wants to argue for and he's certainly steeped in like my preferred you know my preferred way of uh of of doing philosophy and presenting his arguments you know so in and, and you know and and he's also like a pretty smooth writer i mean this is this is a pretty quick read so you know in, in like considering like all of my biases against you know a, a, against brennan like i'm not too angry about having had to read this book
0: yeah one of the things that i like about the text uh, and i do like the text as an expository piece um is that it is pitched uh at surprisingly high um level of aesthetic uh readability right you can disagree with the arguments but you're never going to be sitting there wondering what exactly he's trying to argue at any given time which you sometimes feel when you're reading you know the jacques Derrida's of the world or whatever right
2: i think it's kind of worth saying that like the fact that it's an introductory text and the way it's organized i think both helped and hurt the book to some extent because i and and it's worth mentioning for the audience too because i don't think we were clear i think the The book is written in this unique way, which is actually a series from Oxford University Press called like what everyone needs to know. And like if you go to the Oxford website, you can find a bunch of other ones that aren't on philosophical topics. Like there's one about like whatever medical science and pandemics and like, you know, India. And it'll be like what everyone needs to know, like a a really broad topic of like a broad range of academic topics. And this one just happens to be the libertarianism one. And the way it's written, right, is like uh, um along these uh, over just over 100 questions. So, like, you know, you'll get like, what is libertarianism? Are libertarians liberals? Um, is libertarianism a radical view, right? And then, like, it's organized by chapters. So, like, you'll have chapters about human nature and ethics, right? Like, do libertarians believe that uh, everyone should be selfish? Um, and then, like, questions about democracy and civil rights. And I think uh, you get the point. And I think that that's, like, really good for um for kind of like going through the book and I think Brennan even says at the beginning of the book that he it's purposely written in such a way that you don't actually have to read the whole thing right so he's like you can go and if you're just curious about one of those questions you know you can just go and have a look and see what he has to say about it and I think he does do a good job of knocking down a lot of like the really cringy libertarianism arguments right like you know a a few times reading the book it made me think of um I think someone that both Ben and Matt debated that Stefan Molyneux and I was like Stefan Molyneux would actually probably do pretty well to read this book and see like that his cringy take on, on libertarianism is really unsophisticated and like bad. I think, I guess it would fall under what, what Brennan calls hard libertarianism, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, a classical liberalism. And then I think he calls himself like a neoclassical liberal, which is kind of interesting. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, But I think like one of the things that was a little bit disappointing reading the book was that was that like some of the more media issues, the parts that I wanted to see, like a more robust defense. So, for example, um, you know, he talks a few times about like, why do libertarianism, libertarians oppose the welfare state or what do they think about economic inequality? And he says some things that hopefully we'll get into talking in, in detail about, but I think because of the format of the book, like his defenses of those things, because they ended up being limited to like a few paragraphs or like even, or maybe at best, like maybe five, six pages. So it was like, he would say things and kind of defend them. But then I would just be disappointed because I really wanted a steel man, even though I am like Ben and Matt, probably somewhat hostile towards libertarianism.
0: I've encountered a lot of libertarians who will say things like, under ideal conditions, you would never have crony capitalism because the market isn't supposed to work this way. And my response is, they actually sound like a lot of tankies I know who will say things like, "Well, it wasn't real communism. Isn't supposed to look this way in practice. It was going to be very different. We'll get it right at one point." Uh, and this is why I say to both the Stalinists and the libertarians that we need to be good dialecticians uh, and recognize that no, this is actually what it looks like when you have unbridled capitalism. Uh, naturally, firms are going to use their market power. To try to influence the state to pass policies that are beneficial to them. There's simply no historical evidence I can see uh, that can testify to a point where they haven't done that, right? Uh, Any situation I can think of, that's what large enough firms will try to do for obvious economic reasons, right? Uh, So this idea that we could have something like a truly free market under capitalist conditions that conforms to the libertarian paradise just seems to me like a historical impossibility, at least if we look at the case studies going forward. Uh, And while I'm absolutely willing to say that government bears some responsibility for that, uh, of course it takes two to tango. uh, And one of the things that's frustrating is that they'll of course never look at the market side of things uh, when it comes to crony capitalism. Uh, This is true of PragerU also that released a video on uh, crony capitalism. Uh, It's always the state's fault, right? Uh, Never you know these large firms. One of the things I wanted to say about Brennan that's interesting is twofold, right? Uh, One is that sometimes he is willing to be far more consistent Uh, on certain points than many other online libertarians, as Ben would put it, uh, that we know. Uh, On the immigration issue, he says, look, you know, uh, if you're opposed to state intervention in the lives of people, that means you can't have something like a strong border. In fact, you might not be able to have any border at all, right? Uh, Since interference with people's mobility rights, whether they're American, Mexican, Canadian, uh, Martian, you know, you name it. Right, uh, So I do appreciate that, Right, that he's willing to kind of bite the bullet in that respect. Uh, sometimes that leads to positions, though, that many people on the left will be very hostile to. Uh, and I have a begrudging respect for him for being to, willing to bite those bullets as well, since I think even a lot of conventional liberals wouldn't want, um, want that. Uh, and a very good example that isn't present in this book, but actually uh, in his text Against Democracy, where rather like Hayek of yore he says, look, why do you presuppose that a liberal society would need to be democratic in some way, shape or form, right? Uh, maybe we could actually do better than democracy, which is also something that comes up in that book. Uh, but before we kind of delve into the weeds here, I just figured we should talk about this uh, particular section, since I think this is really at the heart of the book. Uh, so in the first of these kind of numbered sections, uh, he says libertarianism is a political philosophy, uh, which is in itself is telling. Uh, it's not an economic outlook. It's, he defines it as a political philosophy. Uh, but in terms of what they advocate, he says, uh, and I think many of us will take issue with this. Uh, libertarians advocate, uh, and this is an italicized radical tolerance. Uh, libertarianism is a demanding doctrine. It demands that we mind our own business, even though most of us would rather not in a free society, quote unquote, some of us will choose to follow traditional lifestyles. Other will choose, uh, new ways of living. Some will choose tight knit communities. Some will choose communes. Some will choose a life alone. Some will be wicked. Some will be virtuous. So long as a person lives in peace and respects others' liberty, she may live her life as she chooses. Libertarians say, live and let live, as Paul McCartney would put it. So I think that's a good kind of jumping off start point for our broader discussion about these themes. Uh, I personally think that there's deep problems with this, uh, particularly in this kind of propertarian uh, elements, uh, since I'm not really sure you can have a tolerant society and have propertarianism. But before I got, dive into that, what do you guys think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did just want to say... Uh, like, I agree with you, right? It's 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 to his credit that he's, he's consistent on the immigration issue, although that is one place where he's, um, there is like one of his habits in writing this that like did annoy me a little bit that came up, which is uh, his tendency to um, either attribute his views to libertarians with no qualifiers or attribute his views to many libertarians, uh, you know, and not really admit you know, that there are many prominent libertarians who, who disagree, right? So um, he mentions like Ron Paul, uh, you know, several times over the course of the book as, as evidence of the growing popularity of libertarianism. I don't know exactly when this book was written. I know it was during the Obama administration. Uh, so probably the, um, you know, Ron Paul's 2012, you know, run for, uh, for president, uh you know is is a um, I, I think my sense is that that was something that happened recently you know when uh, when this was written but you know he mentions paul to show the popularity of libertarianism several times but you know ron paul uh is extremely anti-immigration uh like like to the point of advocating uh the uh the like amending the constitution to get rid of, rid of birthright citizenship uh so so that you can't have so-called anchor babies uh in uh, you know in the u.s coming over, you know for when they're you know, parents come over, you know, as undocumented immigrants uh from uh from Mexico, or Murray Rothbard, who I think is somebody he mentions in there, you know, had a uh you know, is a extremely prominent libertarian thinker who uh who had an anti-immigration uh, views and had these And was of- a racist,
0: let's just be clear.
1: Yeah, yeah by the end of was- For sure, right? Like I mean, you know, Rothbard in a lot of ways was like a you know, smarter and he's a better writer, but I mean in a lot of ways he's sort of a proto-Molyneux. Um and uh, and and yeah, Rothbard had yeah these very Molyneux esque uh, sort of explanations of why it was actually okay uh, to uh, to to restrict immigration and uh, how maybe even libertarian principles meant that you should restrict immigration because because uh, ta- you know because taxpayers. Uh, you know, own the state in some sense. So it's like really their private property rights that, you know, they can't have people come trespassing, which is, you know, which is a very tortured explanation. And I think to give Brennan credit where credit's due, I think like put, you know, Murray Rothbard or Ron Paul or Stephen Molyneux in a room with Jason Brennan and to argue about immigration. And I don't doubt that like Brennan would like tear all of their rationalizations to shreds. Uh, but also it just seemed like, yeah. I don't know, like especially because in some places he'll acknowledge the existence of intra-libertarian differences, but then like in other places he he really doesn't want to. Or like another one that really bothered me along the same lines that I know I mentioned to you guys uh, messages before this was about civil rights uh, that he he says that you know he brings up civil rights and uh, you know Jim Crow and all that stuff uh, you know several times you know through throughout the uh, throughout the book uh, and. Then, like, he never quite, like, grapples with the fact that there is this, like super obvious libertarian objection to civil rights legislation that like was actually like is the reason for example that Ron Paul's son Rand Paul uh said uh, told Rachel Maddow infamously when he was running for uh, for Senate the first time that he would have voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 because it told private business owners you know what what they could do with their own property you know uh and there's a there's a sort of weird passage where uh Brennan kind of grapples with the issue and he sort of says well from a libertarian perspective there's at least this prima facie uh you know right to do it with you know to, to engage in private discrimination but you know here's a problem so maybe private discrimination can't be allowed which is great but it's like also it's like i don't know if you're gonna do like the introduction to libertarianism you might as well you should at least admit that hard libertarians uh disagree with you uh, about this, uh, and in fact, some not very hard libertarians like Rand Paul disagree with you about that, and some like people who are like quasi-conservative, like you know, people who were very influential in the libertarian movement, like Barry Goldwater, you know, disagreed with you about this, and so, uh, so all of which is just to say that like a lot of times it seems to me that he's he's attributing his he um, that like anything that sort of makes libertarians sound good to liberals. Uh, he'll he'll sort of attribute that version of libertarianism to libertarianism in general without doing the thing that I think would have been a little bit more intellectually honest and awkward which is uh, which is acknowledging uh, that lots of libertarians have have found libertarian reasons to be on the wrong side of these issues and like especially like in that civil rights case I mean yeah, it's to his credit that as a neoclassical liberal or whatever he wants to call himself, you know he's willing to except that non-libertarian reasons overwhelm his libertarian principles in this case, but also it seemed a little bit awkward and like mumbly, you know, that he's like not quite coming to grips with the fact that he's he has very unlibertarian reasons for uh, for 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 taking that that position. It's not that libertarian principles are telling him, you know, to uh, to support uh, mandatory integration laws. You know, it's it's that he's willing to let libertarianism. Uh, you know, let the libertarianism take a hit. So that's so. So that's that's just one thing that bothered me. Yeah, about.
0: I had many of the same difficulties as you. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think aged particularly poorly in the book, uh, just empirically, was uh, he cites the ch- the Tea Party movement charitably uh, as kind of a proto-libertarian movement that we should keep an eye on since they're advancing many ideas that he likes. Uh and then you know circa twenty sixteen when he's complaining about Trump, uh a lot of that seems to disappear uh without so much as a word, right? And uh many of us who are a little bit more critical of the American political right might have said, Well, did you really think the Tea Party movement was gonna wind up becoming a bastion of libertarian thought and uh advocacy for personal freedom and open borders? Might have been a little bit naive there. Uh but also the more fundamental point. Uh I do think, like you said, it's a well written book. Uh I definitely think he's trying to polish the libertarian tradition up. Uh, to make it more palatable, uh, as he says to people who might be skeptical of it, like his democratic aunt. Uh And that's all well and good, right? We all engage in polemics uh, and dogmatics to try to advocate for our positions. But at certain points, I think there's actually a pretty brazen tension in his work, uh, where he does underplay too much uh, some of the uglier sides of libertarian doctrine. One that particularly offended me is uh, in the very first paragraph, he talks about how libertarians are for a kind of radical equality. Um liberal radical equality, as it were. Uh, and his argument for that, which fair enough, is that, look, nobody should be allowed to impose their vision of the good life upon you. Uh, everyone's vision of the id life should be uh, considered equally according to law, uh, even if they're not necessarily equal in and themselves uh, or equal in terms of their virtue. And yeah, fair enough, right? Except that there are a long line of libertarian thinkers going back to Ludwig von Mises, or at least libertarian. Uh, proto-libertarian thinkers, uh, who've always insisted fundamentally on the inequality of human beings. Uh, you know, Von Misa and Ayn Rand had this famous exchange where uh, von Mises said, you know, you have, you know, the audacity or the bravery, I can't remember exactly the term, uh, to tell the masses what no one else wants to tell them, which is that you're inferior, right? Uh, and all the benefits uh, that you've accrued, you owe to men who are better than you, right? Right. Um, and, you know, you see Rand make reference to that all the time, you know, with their uh, description of people as you know, parasites or second handers uh, relative to the, you know, the few creative individuals uh, in a capitalist society who've actually done everything. Right. And I do wish he had spent quite a bit more time engaging with this much uglier side, uh, much less egalitarian side to libertarianism, particularly since post 2012. Um uh, When he wrote the book, Uh, we've seen a lot more of that come to the fore in online spaces where it's almost become kind of a joke where if somebody says they're a libertarian, your media thought process will go, oh, are you a libertarian or are you actually just an alt-right kind of personality who doesn't like woke people uh, as far as using this as a convenient label? I don't know what you guys think. Both
2: of you, I think, are identifying like this sort of tension in in what what is like the normative motivation for Brennan I guess so like like I think it's what's interesting to me is right like the position he ascribes to himself neoclassical liberal he says it's uh it shares many of the same things as classical liberalism but what separates it is that it's has an explicit foundational concern with social justice right which he defines as concerns with distributive justice uh like so a la Rawls um Right. So like, how do we make sure that that people have opportunities to 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 like fulfill their to work with their um, the necessary conditions to express their freedom and live a good life? So I think like what's interesting is it seems like there's like he is kind of leaning on classic libertarian normative motivation, which is just this explicit concern with like liberty right and, and not being interfered with but then social justice is more of like a consequentialist concern. So like, it it just seems like, uh, the neoclassical position he's working with has a, when it's convenient, like he'll, 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 he'll lean on like the libertarian, uh, the more like, I guess, um, pure or hard libertarian reason. But then in other, in other circumstances, he'll talk about, uh, you know, the need for social institutions that are going to benefit, uh, the most number of people. Right. And, and so he'll, he'll use, um, you know, I think the example of of, of uh, open borders, right, is something like the main thing is a concern with social justice um, and like distributive justice. Right. So, I mean, it was just, I guess, strange that like that, 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 that tension seemed to come up depending on on what kind of topic he was he was looking at. And I guess I'm curious what, if what you guys thought about that.
1: Yeah. And so that, that is, that is extremely interesting. Like there were lots of passages uh, where he, he does suggest some, you know, even though he says he's, he's not a hard libertarian, which at the very least means that he doesn't believe in uh, absolute property rights, you know, that, that can't give way to, uh, to anything else, uh, any competing considerations or any, any circumstances, uh but there are all these passages where he he does sound like a hardish uh libertarian you know he'll he'll say he'll say things like oh look at all these rights that people have that can't be sacrificed for these other goals and he'll list off the other goals and he'll even include like economic efficiency as one of those goals that you know that people's rights can't be sacrificed for but in then in other passages uh he he says uh, he has this like fairly consequentialist way of understanding like what property rights even are in the first place that, you know, that they have, that they arise out of social conventions and, you know, people don't have a reason to accept those conventions if they're not going to benefit, you know, enough in, in the, uh, in the term from them. Uh, so, so I think there, I think there is, um, I think there's for sure, uh, some, some, some tension there. I mean, I think that the stuff that Matt's talking about, about, you know, like, leaving people free to, to pursue their conception of the good life uh, does get at one of the things that I found most frustrating about it, which also goes to what you're saying, Victor, because um, like the thing about, you know, consequentialist arguments is that they're actually much harder to make than, than like in principle or deontological arguments, right? You know, you can sort of say like, you can, you can kind of give a par- an argument in a couple paragraphs that, you know, something would violate the categorical imperative or the non-aggression principle or whatever, and, like, that actually might be an okay argument, whereas uh, consequentialist arguments are, for reasons that Brennan himself gestures at at some points in the text, uh, incredibly more difficult, because uh, you don't just, like, to make a serious consequentialist argument for something, it's not good enough to just sort of Um, look at okay, one sort of respect in which it might play out, you know, in in terms of like one factor, because you know, because decisions always have all kinds of intended and unintended, you know, consequences, which he emphasizes where that's convenient. But then his uh, then his con, but his consequentialist arguments are always so simplistic, they uh, they they tend to just be very like you know, not incorporate very many dimensions of how things might play out. And he doesn't even really seem to consider, you know, a lot of the consequentialist arguments that might take someone from his goals to very non-libertarian conclusions. So uh, like an obvious one, and maybe this goes back to Matt's point about how this was written several years back and, you know, like in a very different political landscape in some ways. And
0: so. If I could just know. pause you there, uh, Ben, because I think it is important to situate this in context. Uh One of the things that he foregrounds in this book that maybe isn't as politically relevant today, that I definitely think is an olive branch to the political left, uh, is his concern for international peace. Uh, And he's quite implicitly scathing uh, towards the Bush administration uh, for mobilizing conservative support uh, for the war in Iraq uh, and the war in Afghanistan, which he thinks is fundamentally wrong. Uh, And he does try to kind of coax you into buying into this, uh, sometimes convincingly, I think, by saying, look... Uh, a genuine libertarianism uh, would never support something like these kinds of interventions, right? So, very, very different world uh, than our 2016 post-trunk COVID kind of universe. It seems like forever ago. Yeah, absolutely, right. I mean,
1: like as you said, the Tea Party was a thing back then, uh, and and it's it's really like become a distant memory now. Uh, I would argue because it was always just a branding exercise. Like I, I think actually. Um, one of the most perceptive, you know, not somebody whose politics or my politics, but, you know, one of the most perceptive comments about this, I remember was actually John Stewart on The Daily Show when he was uh, interviewing Ron Paul. And he said, look, you're the real thing as far as the Tea Party goes. Most Tea Partiers are just uh, are just the moral majority in a tri-corner hat, uh, you know, which which is exactly right, uh, that it was always just sort of a branding exercise for basic conservatism. Uh, whereas Brennan thought that it really showed, you know, this, the sort of popularity of libertarian principles, but also, and I, this is something I was kind of reminding myself of like several times during, while I was reading it, uh, he was writing it before that first Bernie Sanders campaign and, and, uh, and the rise of, uh, you know, of, of, of DSA and, and the squad and Congress and, and all of that stuff. Right. Which I think does make a difference because i do think to be fair to brennan that there are things that if he had written it today he probably would have grappled with that you know he he maybe didn't need to because they just weren't on as much on on people's minds and political discussions in 2013 or whatever this was uh and but like i think a couple of those like really do like show how like yeah there are some like pretty obvious ways that you can make consequentialist arguments given his stated goals for very anti-libertarian conclusions. Do you want to give everybody a chance to pursue the good life? Well, uh, are people more or less likely to quit their job to uh, to, to spend a year, you know, uh, living on a tighter budget and finally writing that novel uh, if they don't have to worry that losing their job means they don't have health insurance? Uh, are are people more or less likely to? Go to school and you know get the training that they need for a new career. Uh, if uh, if college is uh, is tuition free and you know paid for by progressive, you know taxation, you know etc. Right, like there are, there are all sorts of obvious ways that you can get from everybody should be able to pursue the you know the good life as they wish uh, to uh, to very to very non libertarian uh, conclusions about economics, uh, and especially because Brennan himself, I mean this this whatever sort of yeah, I, I agree. It's like an under-theorized thing in the book, like exa- at least in this book, you know exactly how neoclassical liberalism is supposed to be different from from hard libertarianism, but it does seem relatively clear that one way it's supposed to be different is that he is kind of acknowledging, even though he kind of wants to have it both ways at certain points of the book, that property rights are yeah, not definitely. like are not like bodily autonomy rights. That you know that that, that redistributing money really is not like redistributing sexual partners or whatever you know that they and and once you've admitted that then if you still want to end up in libertarian places your your consequentialist arguments better be airtight and and i just didn't think they were
2: yeah i think doesn't he say um at one point that uh <clears throat> his view is a, a presumption of liberty as opposed to a uh like like as opposed to an like I don't know uh, some sort of sanctity of liber- of liberty that it's like something that cannot be violated. Yeah, that's right. I think he has a a question where it's like you know what when is when can liberty or can liberty be violated for libertarians, right? And he says it's a pre- it's a prima facie presumption that liberty is is the goal, but there's always going to be circumstances right where that can be um, that can maybe be uh, contradicted. And specifically, right, his normative motivation is like what he calls social justice. So I guess he thinks. I mean, I think he's what he's trying to do is uh, like show that that the best way to achieve social justice, right, is is obviously through these libertarian means that that respect freedom and 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 free and and uh, like free economic activity, you know. But I think one of the one of the examples, right, when he's making these sort of consequentialist arguments for why like liberty and open markets, I mean, they they, they seem to stand and fall on just like empirical claims, right? Like there's a bunch of chapters, uh, one where he talks about. Uh, That I found particularly unconvincing, at least, um, was like, you know, our libertarians trying to protect big business. And he says something. He makes this empirical claim, right, um, by what seemed like cherry picked examples. But again, as I said at the beginning, because a lot of his answers to these questions were kind of brief, it's like he didn't give a very robust defense. He just kind of would say so, like he would say, you know, actually, like more government power is what leads to more corporate power. Right. He has this whole thing where he keeps on like kind of harping on this point. That if you look through the history, you can see that like government power just ends up picking and choosing corporate winners. Right. And like that's actually the thing that leads to crony capitalism is like government. And I mean, it just kind of depends on on the empirical claim. And I found myself thinking that that's true, that that's happened sometimes, like clearly government and decides to subsidize corn crops. And and, and, uh, uh, he talks about that big uh, Arthur Daniels Midland, I think, is the company that he brings up a few times. That they have protected. So it's true. But it just seemed very like a like a very weak argument because it's like he's picking examples that has happened. I agree. I think most leftists are also agreed that that's a bad thing when that happens but to say for, but to but to generalize from that and say well because it's happened in these cases that means government in principle leads to more corporate power seemed like a stretch to me.
1: And it's not even just that it's the state's fault, uh, it's that like the solution is really unclear at least to me, right? You know, he says well the way to basically the way to stop, you know, corporations from buying politicians is to have, you know, like a really minimal libertarian state so there's nothing to buy is like okay but like you know what's what's the game plan here right like how 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 is it that you're going to continue to have these extreme concentrations of wealth but also not have uh, not have the people the wealthy people um, you know use that influence you know politically to uh, to get themselves you know to get themselves special favors i mean like it, it, it just seems it just seems like well we just have to go through some period where everybody's virtuously abstaining from that and uh and this is something I would also argue like really undermines what he says in uh, chapter seven when, uh, when he, he argues that, uh, well, there's really no reason to be an egalitarian, uh, you know, that like the, that anything that looks like the sort of moral force of egalitarianism is captured by like a few other considerations, like welfareism, you know, that like, as long as the people at the bottom have enough, you know, then like there's, there's, there's no, you know, like there's no remaining reason to you know to care about um about inequality uh but this this is a reason right that if there's wildly unequal distribution of economic resources there's going to be a wildly unequal distribution of political influence uh and so yeah I, i agree i mean i think it's a very like um i i i actually think in like much the same way that the tankies think that you can have a, uh, a a state that doesn't have like legal protections of, you know, individual rights, whatever, but it's not going to, you know, you're not going to get these, these, these horrors. Um, you know, I, I think believing that you can have like dramatic inequality without, um, you know, with, without the people at the, uh, at the top, you know, calling in favors from the state just just seems... Uh, just seems extremely naive, not to mention, of course, that the sort of traditional socialist argument, which is that uh, that the same process is going to play out at the uh, at the workplace, that if you have uh, that, if um, that if some people have have way more than others, uh, then then some people are going to be in a position, a bargaining position, to get other people to uh, to to submit to their will, you know, as as bosses, you know, as bosses in the workplace. And neither of those reasons to to care about inequality are really things that he uh, that he grapples with at all in the
2: book. I don't even think he mentions uh like or, or addresses monopolies so i was kind of waiting for him to try to talk to like say something i mean unless i missed it but i don't remember him at all being saying that there was some like l- like intrinsic uh reason related to libertarian moral arguments that would like prevent i guess just like more competition but i mean i don't know empirically that just seems really uh really unconvincing
1: and, and i will also say like that like when he's the extent to which he he addresses it, you know, is it, like you say, he just keeps on saying, well, uh, you know, it's because like government action, you know, help, helps, you know, big businesses consolidate or provides incentives, you know, for big business consolidation. Uh, but I also think it's like really telling about the limits of his uh, of his concern here, because uh, like there's no. The whole thing is like from. A perspective that assumes that like really the objection to libertarianism just serving the interests of business is that it would serve the interests of big business uh that you know that that like the person the people who like sure let's say for the sake of argument libertarian you know libertarian uh policies would result in uh, much less consolidated you know enterprises that you'd have that like ownership would be much more Much more dispersed. Well, you know that's 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 good news for small business owners, but it's not at all obvious uh, that that helps uh, that helps workers much. I mean, if if anything, you know, wages tend to be tend to be lower at smaller businesses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the historical arguments that I typically make uh, with regard to this crony capitalism point is that uh, we've never seen a libertarian paradise, uh, but we have seen plutocracy for you know, three or 4,000 years at this point. Right. So it's a much more recognizable form of government uh, than anything that they're putting forward.
1: Yeah. It, and, and, and he says like things like, Oh, like when he's arguing that like left-wing policies are going to make the problem worse uh, and lead to more corporate consolidation, he says, well, the moderate left and the shape of the democratic party has been in power, but then he never seems to do the parallel thing and say like, well, hold on. So are have it libertarian preferences, uh been at least as much implemented you know through uh through uh you know like deficit hawk conservatives you know as uh as as certainly as as you can say like any kind of robustly left-wing preferences have been through moderate democrats i mean like the uh like you know ronald Reagan, uh you know when he was running for president gave interviews to reason magazine where he said you know uh, libertarianism is the core of conservatism and of course you know, somebody as smart as Brennan could list off, like spend a couple pages listing off all the, all the respects in which that's bullshit as far as like, uh, Reagan's, you know, Reagan's policies and, uh, and, and, you know, conservatism in general, but like also, you know, there are no past democratic presidents who said that the core of liberalism
0: was socialism. Yeah, very true. Well, I, I want to move on briefly to the kind of deontological dimensions of his argument, since I think that's what a lot of us want to bite our teeth into Uh, Since, as Ben mentioned, uh, the kind of consequentialist arguments he makes uh, about economic efficiency, we could be here all day going back and forth with examples on that. Uh, Maybe we will in a sequel episode. Uh, But a lot of the stuff that he says uh, at the opening of the book, uh, as a kind of set of axioms that libertarians take to be true, or at least presume to be true, to use Victor's language, might actually sound very attractive to people on the political left. Uh, And I'll just run through them very quickly, right? Radical respect, radical equality, radical peace, uh, responsibility, not radical responsibility, strangely, and then finally, radical freedom. Uh, I mean, it's almost strange how often that word is invoked, uh, since you can go through anything by a contemporary socialist and they won't use the term radical, uh, as often as that, uh, you know, Victor and I kind of joke around about that every now and then. Uh, but you know, look, my argument is in principle, uh, I'm willing to grant him, uh, this kind of axiomatic preference for moral equality and, uh, individual freedom. Uh, we can argue about that from a meta-ethical standpoint. And if we want to get really into the weeds, that would be extremely important. But let's just give him that for right now. Uh, the question that I would have is: would be, is a libertarian system of the, si- the type he describes the best system for securing individual liberty uh, and moral equality? And my contention would be that it's not. Uh, and the contention that I would make about this is that Almost any socialist, uh, particularly, you know, 21st century, is going to have an extreme degree of respect, at least for bodily autonomy. And Ben, you and I talked about that a little bit last week. Right. Uh, You know, most socialists and leftists today will think uh, it's very important, for instance, that women have a right to choose uh, whether or not to have an abortion. Uh, Most of us are anti-war on drugs. Uh, Most of us tend to be put a lot of weight on, on the importance of mobility rights, particularly for migrants. Right. Uh, so we would all agree with Brennan on this one. Uh, I think the disagreement would come uh, in ter- on the possessive individualist point, uh, this idea that what's important to freedom and equality isn't just bodily autonomy, but property rights. Uh, and what's interesting is he shifts gears later in the book when defending property rights from the kind of deontological language he uses earlier in the text to a much more consequentialist kind of perspective. Uh which isn't what you see some people like Nozick do, you know, where he says, look, you know, we want property rights because they enhance economic efficiency. It looks after the poor. And I think that one of the reasons for this sh- shift in orientation is precisely because Brennan knows that it's very difficult, as Ben said, to move from this notion of individual freedom, moral equality, and uh, as it relates to bodily autonomy, to a very strict concept of property rights. Try, though many libertarians have, right?
1: Yeah, yeah uh and and i think uh again it's especially hard to shift uh to to shift to that yeah i mean because of course right like we were talking about uh last week uh if if you try to run like the 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 nozick you know kind of argument which uh by the way i'm I'm still like every time i think back to what you mentioned that that still makes me laugh that like uh that that nozick uh buried the um uh the big, obvious objection to his to his defense of, of existing property rights in a footnote. Uh, that, that, well, give that's him like
0: credit a, where credit's due. At least he was aware that it was an objection,
1: right? Uh, fair enough. But like the book's several hundred pages long and it all seems to be defending one thing. And then you say, well, actually, none of this quite applies to the real world. And you put it in a footnote, you know, it's okay. Anyway, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that there, so this is a big problem for that sort of in-principle uh, hard, you know hard libertarians you know as as, as he puts it in, in there that like you know they'll they'll try to move from um and even he kind of tries to do this at some point right you know because because he'll he does you know because he does like using metaphors with bodily autonomy uh to to ground economic you know liberties uh at different points in the book but you know certainly when the hard libertarian tries to go from bodily autonomy to ownership and external property i mean it, it always ends up being kind of a weird mess uh, because, because there's just no obvious principle for uh, getting from one to the other. I mean, like all the things that you know that libertarians can can try to say. You know, you you're the first person to see something. You're the first person to claim something. You mix your labor with it. Whatever. All of these would be like okay rules for a society to adopt. You know in you know in a sort of circumstance of lots of unclaimed land and you know you need some way to, to decide how to recognize freeholding
0: claims and these would all be like, like a risk free. game you know what i mean you all have your little pieces and you put them wherever on the map you want and then everybody starts from there right yeah yeah exactly so like under those
1: circumstances you know of like imagining people like you know pioneers in the western frontier but without the genocide element like i have like under those circumstances uh you know all of these would be okay systems Uh, maybe, but uh, the idea that any one of them has some sort of like principled, like deontological status, that this is just like, this is where you get your natural rights to property, like just just seems hopelessly arbitrary. And um, which is why, to his credit, Brennan doesn't really try to do that, right? He tries to give a sympathetic hearing to hard libertarians who do argue that way. But then, like, at least in those passages where he's being most precise, he says, eh, property is a social convention. You know, it, it has to, uh, like, there are all these reasons why it's a good social convention to have, but it's a social convention. And a lot of those reasons are just reasons that would just apply to any stable, uh, predictable distributive system that, uh, that you, you know, it allows people to make plans because they have firm expectations about what's going to happen, that no contracts are going to be on or all that stuff all that stuff would be true for like any economic system with stable, well-enforced rules. Like that doesn't tell you anything about why we should have the kind of property rights that we have under capitalism. Uh, and you know, and otherwise he's just giving a consequentialist argument. And when he's giving those consequentialist arguments, it seems like the way that he likes to do it is by saying, well, look, look how much more sure, you know, uh, having access to money is a kind of positive Liberty, blah, blah, blah. But, um, you know, poor people are better off under capitalism, you know, than than under alternatives. So, you know, so then it's good to have capitalist property rights. Uh, but it's so like it's 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 so half-assed. I mean it's it's just like 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 what is he really comparing that to? He's comparing it to uh pre-capitalist forms of society, you know, feudalism, hunter-gatherer societies, whatever. In which case, certainly no Marxist is going to disagree with him Uh, or uh, or he's or he's comparing it to uh, to Stalinism, I guess. But like, you know, that, you know, I think I would argue that even there he's he's severely simplifying the historical record uh, that, you know, that like I I think the I think the balance sheets of of what's been good and bad about, you know, capital C communist societies is more is more complicated than what he's suggesting. Uh, But also like, OK, fair enough. Like somebody could say, he could say reasonably, all right, Ben, you know, you want to say, here's like a kind of like radical democratic socialism that that has never actually existed. And, you know, you want me to compare capitalism to that, but that's an unfair comparison, blah, blah, blah. And we could have a whole argument about that and how that relates to you know, the crony capitalism stuff Matt was really raising
0: earlier, but you he know, did write but, a book in response to G.A. Cohen, which I have not read. I should say, uh, why not capitalism in response to Cohen's why not socialism? So yeah, maybe in a future episode, we'll go through that, but
1: no, that'd be fun. I like that. But like, I, I was just going to say, um, like on a much more basic level, like, okay, fair enough. So let's just, for the sake of argument, uh, let's take like, uh, let's take, um, uh, alternative, more democratic forms of socialism that have never been tried off the table and say that's not even what we're going to worry about for the sake of comparison. Well, the range of existing societies doesn't just include uh, East Germany, feudal Europe, and, and modern capitalism. Uh, it also includes like advanced social democracies, uh, which, uh, which certainly uh, score way higher on, on most of you know I would argue on on most of the criteria he claims to care about, uh, than uh than the the uh, the far more laissez-faire you know kind of capitalism that we have here.
2: It's funny he actually mentions uh, he actually mentions a couple of times like Switzerland and Canada uh, like as examples of countries that are that score higher on the freedom index from like whatever that libertarian think tank, which I thought was kind of funny because they all have some form of robust social safety. Now, I mean, not like the social democracies of Scandinavia, but still but be- certainly, certainly better. Better
1: compared to the U S.
2: Exactly. Exactly. But this is, this also, I mean, kind of made me think this discussion about like the role of consequentialist reasoning in general and put in, in like political argumentation and like sort of to be, to be fair to Brennan's sort of like awkward back and forth between using like that deontological sort of hard libertarian reasoning versus consequentialist social justice, informed reasoning. And like, you know, I mean, I think we see it on uh, like among socialists kind of analogously in the sense that like, you know, if you if you think that like uh, so- socialism has to be where the state or the state or somehow collectively the means of production are controlled. But, you know, there might be a lot of consequentialist reasons where we think that it might be useful to be a market socialist or something like that. And it's like that right. Like when it's convenient, it makes sense because and I, I mean, I don't know this. I don't want to take the discussion off track, but I mean, it does. I find myself when I read this. And other times when this question comes up, I remember just being an undergrad philosophy student, right? And thinking about like, well, shouldn't like, isn't consequentialism just the thing that matters like the, the most? Because I feel like if this is true, I mean, a couple times reading Brennan's book, I mean, rarely was I like thinking convinced by the empirical claims he was making about the consequences of, of markets and, and individualism. But, like, I did think to myself, you know, like, it, like as sort of, a, like, what informs my own moral outlook towards the world, like, if this was true, I think I would have to support it, uh, like, in a few cases anyway, right? Like, I don't have some kind of um, ideological or, like, or, or de- I don't know if the word deontological would even apply, but I don't have some kind of attachment to things having to be government-run. Like, if it's going to give me the outcome... Uh, then I'm gonna support it, right? And there's a good reason, but like I don't think that it's gonna give that outcome. So I, I, I just wanted to, to
0: intervene there in one second um, and talk about it about his history as a bleeding heart uh, so-called libertarian. One of the interesting things about uh, bleeding heart libertarians, uh, libertarianism, uh, is it was very influenced by the thinking of John Rawls, uh, who, famously, near the end of his life, declared himself uh, to be either for a property owning democracy or some kind of liberal socialism, uh, which is what I self endorse. Uh, but anyway, long, long story short, you know, Brandon kind of makes the argument that actually we could endorse libertarianism, the libertarian approach to property rights, uh, on Rawlsian principles, because he says, look, Rawls doesn't say we have to be attached to this or that distributive order, right? What we need to do is be attached to a distributive order that maximizes the benefit of the least well off, right? Sorry, any particular empirical distributive order, uh, and he says uh, if it turns out empirically that a libertarian approach to property rights does make the least well off better off than any other competitor, then we have good Rawlsian reasons to adopt it. Which was an intriguing argument. I don't see him make it that often any longer, I think, because because it's so empirically contestable. Um, I mean, you can think about the Scandinavian example uh, Ben brought up as just a huge counter-argument against that. Uh, But at least it was a kind of creative way of trying to spin things um, in a manner that might be palatable to some progressives, right? I find all of,
1: like in general i find those like libertarian like country freedom indexes hilarious because mm-hmm. like libertarians and brennan does this all the time in the book will treat that as if it's just like this like really clear like uncontroversial like s- factual starting point for discussions just objectively about
0: more free yeah it's <laughs> like oh these
1: are the countries that are objectively more free than these other countries it's like the hell does that mean like you'd have like all like there are, a zil- like, even by libertarian standards, there are a zillion different factors by which you could, you know, evaluate countries and then you have to come up with a way to weigh them and, like, whatever, like, you know, whatever formula the Cato Institute has come up with, you know, for for deciding, you know, which countries are more free is extremely opaque uh, and and in some cases just hilarious. Like, they have, uh, like, like, whether, um, like, whether there are regulations against, like, raw milk, is is something that comes up like as one of the criteria by which they use to evaluate country rank countries by freedom but like whether abortion is legal isn't right so it's uh, it's like a it's such a weird eccentric thing you know like and, and, and it's just like taking this like whatever sort of mixture of 20 factors and weighted in whatever way makes sense to you know like whatever intern at the Cato Institute is like to, has been tasked with crunching these numbers, the idea is like, oh, okay, well, fair enough. So that, you know, economic freedom, there we go. All we have to do is look at the list, especially when, as Victor said, he keeps on referencing all of these countries that are much more social democratic than the United States as being economically freer. And it's like, well, now I get real confused, you know, cause like if, if that's, if all that's compatible with economic freedom, then then i I'm, I'm, I'm I no longer understand what I disagree with this guy
0: about. Well, to be fair to him, uh, he does actually point out that despite the fact that libertarian ideas are very popular in the United States, the United States, uh, as Victor pointed out, isn't by not at all uh, close to being the libertarian paradise uh, that many people want it to be. And he does, you know, highlight some of the examples of this. You know, one of the most obvious ones is the fact that the United States, land of the free, you know, New Hampshire's slogan, live free or die, uh, is also the country with far and away the highest incarceration rate uh, in the world. Right. Uh, you know, just thousands of people per million uh, incarcerated in U.S. jails. Uh, that's certainly not the case uh, in many other countries, including some uh, where you would expect the incarceration rate to be far higher uh, than in the U.S. You know, the Cuba's the world, the Iran's. Uh, don't want to speak to North Korea since you know I would never trust anything that comes out of that government or, or China. But uh, certainly compared to other um, OECD countries, you know the Nordic states, France, Canada, etc., so it doesn't do really well on those metrics.
1: Yeah, no, that that part's totally fair. But I mean, it, it's also, um, and I mean, obviously I'm exaggerating. We say I no longer know what I. I mean, I know a lot of stuff I disagree with him about, but like it, it does though seem like if his conception of economic freedom isn't violated when you take uh when you take important uh aspects of society outside of the market and you know pay for them by progressive taxation and make them free at the point of service then like i i do get a little bit fuzzier about what you know what what economic freedom means you know like like it and 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 it, like certainly all of those you know canada switzerland never mind you know norway and sweden and finland you know like like have like have done that in spades you know compared to the states
2: you know i had a similar experience like <laughs> as ben you know i know you like obviously there's lots of things to disagree with but there's actually like a key moment i think when he's talking about inequality i think it's question 78 when he when he asks like what do libertarians think about inequality and um he kind of says, oh so i, I actually I, I did select a quote here he says um classical and neoclassical liberals hold that welfareism. So welfareism is, I guess, prioritizing the welfare of people. And then he talks about sufficientarianism, which is like the idea that you have to make sure everyone has like the sufficient means to be free, uh, like sufficient, like material resources and then prioritarianism, right. Which is like, we should prioritize the worst off. So he kind of like bundles all three of these views. And he says that they capture the moral force of egalitarianism, which is what he thinks, uh, is like kind of motivating the left. Um, And then he says, if welfarist, sufficientarian and prioritarian goals have been met from the standpoint of social justice, egalitarianism has no remaining attraction, right? So he says, and then he says, neoclassical liberals agree that a fair and just society gives everyone a stake in that society. A just society has institutions that ensure as much as possible that everyone has the resources needed to be a free person. Still, they say the goal of a society is to make everyone well off not to make them equal right so like to make everyone well off but not necessarily equal and i mean i mean reading that again i kind of had this this sensation of being like well i guess like that's like i'm not going to disagree that i want that too but but i guess the question obviously is like empirically are is the is is that actually going to be achievable from the things he wants but it is interesting that he kind of is trying to set up his argument to be look if i meet all these things then like your egalitarian concern goes away like that's kind of like the way he's trying to structure it which is key, I think, to, to, the, to yeah. the argument.
0: And here I think we need to be careful, right? Uh, I mean, uh, Nozick in Anarchy, State, and Utopia has a critique of egalitarianism, which I think is kind of a caricature uh, of what a, a lot of us actually want, uh, but nonetheless, unless it's quite popular. Uh, and he runs, look, you know, uh, if you're really committed to substantive equality uh, or, you know, the dreaded Petersonian equality of outcome, right? Uh, does that mean, you know, if you have people running a race and some people have natural abilities that... Exceed those of others that you should put weights in their shoes or handicap them in some way. Uh, If somebody is more handsome than other people, you know, this handsome man thought experiment, which I did think was funny, actually. uh, Should you try to make him less attractive uh, so that he doesn't outcompete other people in the sexual marketplace? purely through morally arbitrary uh, advantages that have to do with genetics for which he can take no credit, right? And he says, obviously, we would never want to do any of these things, uh, ergo, what we shouldn't be trying to aspire to is equality uh, along any or most metrics, right? Uh, it's kind of like the incredible uh, problem. If anybody's seen that movie, uh, you know, at some point, the villain in the movie says, you know, if everyone is special, then nobody will be. You know, that's the kind of damning world that he paints for us, right? Uh, and... In responding to that, uh, I typically say, look, you know, uh, it's, I can't think of any serious egalitarian, uh, and I'm, like Ben will always say, I'm sure if we scour the internet, you know, there'll be somebody there who says, you know, we must be equal equal in every single respect, you know, bar none, uh, but, you know, serious egalitarians who will say we need to be equal along every single metric, right? Uh, virtually everybody I can think of recognizes that there'll be substantial differences in personal property uh, in a socialist society. That people's natural abilities will differ uh, in some important respects. Uh, And that might actually be a good thing uh, if they develop them and they can be beneficial uh, to the rest of society. Uh, And of course, people will differ in terms of their personal virtue, right? Uh, Try though, I might. I can't think of even the most dystopian scenario uh, where sci fi authors come up with a way of making good people evil uh, or evil people good, right? Uh, A lot of that has to do with individual choices, personal characteristics. Social environments uh, that go beyond even just economics, et cetera, et cetera. So there will be inequalities, right, uh, in the kind of socialist society that I would want, uh, and I imagine Ben would want. Uh, the question is, you know, uh, how far should we allow economic inequalities uh, that relate to substantial power inequities uh, to stand? Uh, and there I think we would want to be a lot more scrupulous uh, than Renan is, because uh, I think allowing substantial inequities in economic power that translate into political power. Uh, isn't just wrong morally, but fundamentally actually poses serious existential problems to liberal society because of the emergence of things like crony capitalism uh, and many of the other things that we've talked about. I'm not sure if you guys agree, but I'm just going to put that forward uh, as a kind of argument.
1: Yeah, I I think so. Uh, I I mean, I, I do think there are, you know arguments for taking equality seriously like as a um as like a default uh that you know that um that i i'm not convinced that brennan is adequately uh you know is adequately grappling with right you know that like that i i think even in some of his arguments where again i'd point to you know the ways that he addresses or doesn't quite address questions about racial justice as a, as a place where he seems to get like slightly embarrassed at certain points by where libertarian principles would lead him, you know, if, uh, if taken like sufficiently seriously, um, you know, both in, uh, his, you know, his willingness to to root to outlaw private sector, you know, just discrimination, uh, for, you know, for consequentialist reasons. And also, in the places where he sort of says, "Well, okay, in a qu- distributive inequality between black people and white people in the United States, didn't really come out, come about, you know, in an immaculate way," and so maybe we could do something or other to correct it. I'm not quite sure what next section. Uh, and uh, and in in those in that second place in particular, it seems to me that he is kind of granting that like inequality might be a little bit troubling. Uh, In itself that like okay maybe racial inequality would be okay if it just sort of happened that way right but like since it didn't it's not but presumably he wouldn't go the other way around he wouldn't say well if it if we just happened if um you know let's say that if we'd let the free market chips fall where we may for whatever reason there'd be a little bit more racial inequality just due to whatever weird historical circumstances uh therefore it's not okay that we have greater equality right the way he would when it's the other way around, so uh I think in that passage it seems to me that like even he feels a little bit of a pull of uh of egalitarianism uh but i i generally I generally agree with that right like I mean I think that nobody's really um i mean it's even beyond the sort of Harrison Bergeron examples about you know about the uh you know uh like inequality in looks or inequality and in, you know singing ability and you know and all of that stuff. Uh, none of which is stuff that, you know, really, for the most part, you know, like, like uh, leftists, be, you know, object too much, like even on the sort of stricter, like questions of economic equality. Uh, I don't know who these people are really who who think that they, we have to have like perfect uh, economic equality. Um, you know, I mean,
0: again, scare the Internet. You'll find someone, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. I mean, Cicero said there's no position so. Absurd that some philosopher doesn't defend it, and you know for sure there's no position so absurd that someone on Reddit doesn't defend it. You know, like you will be able to find someone for everything, but uh, but by and large, right? Uh, do social democrats think that? No, certainly not, right? Do like New Deal, Great Society, left liberals think that? No, certainly not. Uh, do Marxists think that? Well, Marx certainly didn't. Uh, you know, read, read critique of the Gotham program. You know, he he thought that in a uh, early stage of a socialist society, you would you would need some material uh, inequality for the sake of incentives. That you know, if some people chose to work harder, you know, or for longer hours than others, you know, you should you should give them more material rewards to incentivize that. And he thought in a more advanced social society uh, where you had material superabundance, then the whole issue of distributive equality would just sort of be moot because everybody could could take what they want. And whatever you think about that um like just bracketing any question about how realistic or well thought out any of that is like that's certainly not a a vision of absolute egalitarianism in either half uh and in the um and and certainly people who have like more sort of elaborate schemes of like how market socialism or participatory economics or whatever certainly none of those people are envisioning that we'd have exact perfect in a distributive inequality the issue is are there reasons to object to it, to like extreme inequalities? Are there, are there reasons to think, okay. Um, yeah. Some people have a little bit more than others and whatnot, and there might be good reasons to, to have that, but like, you know, uh, have like the sort of inequality so extreme that they would lead to some people agreeing to just standard capitalist labor contracts where they gave away their voice and their vote and, you know, the operation in exchange for having any kind of job at all. Right. Like the sort of thing that, which by the way right now slight side note but give me like 30 seconds on this i do love uh that as we are recording this a super pervasive right wing talking point uh is in the united states is oh my god it's terrible that with these universal income payments because of covid uh that uh that people you know we can't find anybody to flip burgers anymore uh that uh like like every you know all of these like you know biz- like Empirically, it's a little dubious, like how much truth there is to, to that, but like, there are certainly a lot of business owners and a lot of right-wing politicians who that's their stated belief that it's a big problem finding enough people to flip burgers, you know, because of uh, the UI payments. And it's like, that just really seems like a mask off thing, you know, cause it's like, okay, well, which is it right? Like, are you actually going to claim that people are working these jobs of their own free will, uh, or or are you kind of admitting that you need the whip of destitution to get people to agree to work under these circumstances? Yeah, not kidding. It, eh? Which it really seems like they're admitted in these cases, uh, and in fact. You know, yeah, I mean, like whether whether it's true or not, that there is that that much of a labor shortage, uh, you know, their stated explanation of it assumes that you need the whip of destitution to get people to agree to work at McDonald's or Walmart or wherever. But uh, but also so like, yeah, having so much inequality that you get that in the workplace is a problem, having so much inequality, that you get inequality and in political influence is a problem, having so much inequality that you end up, you know, uh, having, you um, that, uh, that you end up having people, some people just have much worse life outcomes, uh, is, uh, is, is a problem in itself, which, you know, like you, you know, go back to, to the race metaphor. It's like, okay, if all you're doing is hobbling the person at the front and you're not doing anything to help people in the back, sure. Maybe, you know, that would be silly. Right. But, uh, but of course the whole issue is that, uh, is that, there are all these reasons to, to think that the two are not unrelated, you know, that uh, even if you agree with some of like Brennan's economic arguments and think that like bad incentives are created, you know, that do, uh, you know, that like, so maybe you're, you, you know, maybe the effect of some of this stuff is to do more hobbling at the front than helping people at the back. Undeniably, you are helping people at the back, you know, when you do, you know, when you do redistribution. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, like maybe this goes to Victor's point about, you know, consequentialism, you know, even though, I mean, I'm certainly not a, um, I'm certainly not willing to go all the way to pure consequentialism, you know, in, in moral political philosophy. I mean, I think we could, you know, I I, I think, um, you know, you could come up with some scenario where, you know, you have a teensy tiny little slave class that's, you know, that's subordinate, you know, to everybody else and
0: much the more. The doctors to slice up their patients and redistribute yeah, their organs.
1: <laughs> exactly. Right. So like for all of those reasons, I wouldn't go all the way to pure consequentialism, but like also, I do kind of have the reaction that Victor is expressing earlier to a lot of that stuff, which is like, okay, sure. Yeah. Do sufficientarianism and welfareism, and prior prioritism or whatever it is like prioritarianism. Uh, like maybe when you put those three together, they do capture most of the reasons to care about equality. But also I think as an empirical matter that if you take those three things really seriously, then you, you can't have too much economic inequality or it's going to mess with all three of them.
2: Yeah, I totally, uh, I totally agree with that. And I mean, to answer to Matt's earlier point, like I, I do think that the point of Brennan bringing up those different isms, the prioritarianism, right. Is to say that like, you know, obviously he's not going to like people, like most leftists don't want like perfect equality. Um, right. That there, There's like, there's like, you know, you want to make sure everyone has sufficient means and, and whatever, but you know, uh, sort of reading this book and, and this discussion, it's also reminding me of uh, Matt and I did a podcast a while ago where we looked at uh, uh, Wolf's anarchism, the indefensive anarchism book. I'm not sure if you ever read it, Ben, but um, but like, I mean, the 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 reasoning in that, like the reaction I had to that book, it was like a very like fixated on this, like very strict definition of freedom, like a, like a kind of deontological obsession with freedom. And I mean, obviously, Brennan's hedging uh, here a lot more. But you know, it does. It does. When I think about like the, the tendency, I suppose, in political philosophy to get su- too fixated on one thing. Right? I guess the left, you could accuse them of sometimes in bad versions, getting too fixated on equality. Yeah, they're getting too fixated on equality, and then I don't know, libertarians too fixated on freedom, and. You know, and I think back to just why I got interested in political philosophy and political theory, which is just thinking about like those deep questions about what is the good life and like, what are we, what's the point of us living together and organizing our society? It's like, what are we actually after? And it's like freedom to me. It's like, is that like, that's not even, um, like it's good for something, right? Like freedom is good to do something to like, uh, and so But then when you start to just get to you almost reify like it seems like some of these libertarian are are like reifying freedom as if it's like this this intrinsically important good. But like really I don't know as a as a as a leftist with with sort of um, consequentialist concerns about the good life about living the good life. It's like I'm only interested in the freedom that's going to get that's going to enable me to do something that's that's related to like the good life I suppose
1: yeah and 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 i mean like i don't know i mean maybe i i I think i might have slightly different intuitions about this like I, i think that um whether freedom is sort of at the um like at the floor as we go down to to our to our list of concerns whether it's all the way back down there or not right like it's certainly uh and I mean, I think that's an interesting question, like how much of it's instrumental, which, you know, a lot of Brendan's arguments are anyway, right. And, and how much of it is, uh, you know, that we value in itself. And I, I think I am inclined to, you know, think that we, that we do value in itself to some extent, you know, or, or, although also it's incredibly ambiguous, right. There are different kinds of freedom, you know, but, um, but I, I would feel really remiss if we ended the discussion with, without like noting that, you um, you know, that like one of my biggest criticisms of the book is that, you know, is is that Brennan uh, kind of takes it for granted throughout uh, that freedom or at least negative freedom, you know, he, you know, when he's talking about positive freedom, he, he does understand that, you know, like he has to make like slightly more complicated consequentialist arguments. And for all the reasons we've talked about, I'm not sold on those arguments, but put that to one side, right. He also seems to assume that uh, negative freedom, uh is like unambiguously associated with libertarian you know policies uh and and I, I i really hate for us to have this whole discussion without pushing back against that at least a little bit you know since uh i mean for one thing uh, you know the classical marxist objection to capitalist employment contracts uh is is that they they are uh coercive uh that they uh, that people you know that given uh, you know wildly unequal bargaining power uh, you know that uh, that you you don't really have um, you know that you're not really making a, a totally uncoerced you know free decision to agree to these arrangements uh, and and so that's that's one thing but then another thing is just that like he, he keeps talking like he does a very typical libertarian thing throughout this book where he just constantly talks about force and violence and coercion in this way that suggests that uh, that you know that force and violence and coercion like more libertarian more economically libertarian means less force and violence and coercion and and i think that should really be questioned in a lot of ways right like one of them is the way that prudon was uh, was talking about you know when he said that property is theft which is um you know i think about a lot now you know because because you know my wife and i have been riding out the pandemic and uh you know, Hoden Lake, Michigan, which, as the name suggests, you know, is is a uh, is a town that's that's like right next to a lake. But like, man, good luck to you if you uh, if if you want to like find a place to like actually walk into the lake, you know, without uh, without trespassing on someone's property. You know, you have to drive a long time, you know, to uh, to get to the one tiny little bit of public you know of public beach where the the water's like a foot deep. You know, that's uh, uh, so by definition, property is about asserting at least the threat of force to stop people from using something like like that's 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 what property is you know that you're asserting a right to exclusively uh to exclusively use something and if you're not going to enforce it it's not worth very much uh so uh you know certainly proper i mean what do property rights mean when it comes to like squatters and unoccupied buildings presumably it means using coercion you know whether whether you know whether public coercion through the police or private security or whatever to uh, to to enforce you know to enforce property rights uh, and sophisticated libertarians like understand this and and they and they will when you press them be very careful about it they won't say okay no no we're not really talking about violence exactly right as what we're objecting to we're not talking about you know force or coercion in the ordinary <laughs> sense of that term which is like. You know, pointing a gun at someone, you know, as, as as a use of force or, you know, saying, you know, if you don't do what I say, I'll call some state authorities to come and force enforce it. What they're really talking about is aggression, uh, which uh, which when but then when they get around to telling you what that means, as Matt Brunig famously points out, it gets very circular very quickly, you know, because whether something counts as aggression or not ultimately boils down to whether you have a legitimate property claim or not. And at that point, we're just arguing about what the distribution of resources should be, which is like, well, if that's what we're arguing about, like we, we should have just started there and not gone down this rabbit hole of what, you know, of, of force and violence and coercion.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, and I guess I'll end with this point. And then Victor can have the last word uh, or maybe Ben, if you want to respond to both of things. Uh, but I'm just going to say that, um, there are two kinds of libertarians that I encounter uh, online. Uh, there's the good, sophisticated libertarian, and then there's the anti-woke libertarian. Uh, and what I've noticed about the anti-woke libertarian is they're not actually all that libertarian, right? Uh, generally speaking, they tend to associate with libertarianism or classical liberalism, typically for a while. Uh, this is the Stéphane Molyneux type crowd, and I'd also throw in Ludwig von Mises and Anne Ryan as more sophisticated, but not by much, uh, kind of expositors of this position. Uh, and what you find if you actually delve into their arguments is that they aren't actually committed very deeply to even the classical liberal liberties. Uh, what they're committed to is this idea that people need to be sorted hierarchically uh, in terms of superior and inferior. Uh, and the reason they like the market is they see the market as being able to accomplish this. Uh, but if you start to see things, and this is what you're starting to see with the Republicans right now, like woke capitalism, for example... Uh, what's quite striking is a lot of these libertarians will very quickly change their gear a little bit and start talking about why we need the state to actually undertake aggressive action uh, in order to recreate the hierarchy that they feel is appropriate. Uh, so if not capitalism, then it needs to be something else. Okay? Uh, and a lot of people I see online who kind of ascribe to libertarianism seem to hold these beliefs. I don't think they're really legit. Uh, what I do like about this book is Brandon does seem to me to at least be a principled libertarian, right? Uh, he's willing to bite the bullet and says we have this deontological commitment uh, to liberty, uh, a certain kind of radical equality, and property rights, uh, and we need to stand by it, not no matter what, because he does include some qualifications, but pretty consistently, right? Uh, that includes things like no social restrictions on most kinds of actions, open borders, uh, not going to war, and I'll give him a lot of credit for that. Uh, What I don't like about this book uh, is, again, and I think uh, Ben talked about this, the prioritization of certain kinds of freedom over others. Uh, And with Paul Graham and Victor, I agree that uh, we shouldn't just prioritize freedom. I think there are other things that we have reason to value. Uh, But even if we are just going to prioritize freedom, I think it's important to ask what that means. Uh, And I think libertarianism does a good job of accounting for our desire for negative liberty uh, and to a certain extent our desire for positive liberty. But what it really doesn't care very much about, and Brennan is just a spectacular example of that, is social liberty uh, or civic freedom, as it's sometimes called, right? The right to be governed uh, by a set of laws and institutions that I myself have a say in, right? Uh, And this of course is a conception of liberty that goes back to the ancient Greeks. uh, And it's something that I can't think of any serious libertarian thinker who actually prioritizes it, precisely because they know circa Ben that if we have the option uh, of trying to decide what kind of institutional arrangement we, we truly desire, we might not actually choose to have a organization of property rights and entitlements that conforms to what libertarians wish. Uh, and where this potential starts to arise, you'll see them very quickly start to turn against democracy and civic freedom. Uh, and I say that because, of course, that's the title of Brennan's most famous book, right? Against democracy, uh, where he makes this argument abundantly clear, right? That we do not need to have civic freedom, uh, if that's going to challenge my conception of the kinds of freedom that I feel we have reason to prioritize. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. So for our listeners, you can read this book and the argument is put forward there. I think for, it's put forward a lot more elaboration and uh, against democracy. But what's worth noting about it, even in that uh, book is that he doesn't really have a good answer to this issue of civic freedom or social freedom, however you want to call it. Uh, he basically just says, well, participating in government, uh, it's such a small freedom, you have such a little say, voting doesn't really matter all that much and most people don't vote anyway. So there's no real reason we should prioritize it all that much. Uh, To which I respond, no, that actually goes to demonstrate how impoverished a lot of our democratic institutions are. And it's why we need to make sure that civic freedom gets a big comeback, uh, both at the state level and also preferably in the workplace.
1: Also, by the way, I mean, he, he cares passionately about freedom to own the means of production, and uh, a hell of a lot fewer people do that than vote. Yeah, that's for, that's for sure. Both
0: of that.
2: Yeah, that's for, uh, he actually said. He also said. I think he calls like a concern with civic freedom or democracy. I think he calls it like romantic or something. He's like, it's a romantic thing that like I don't see any intrinsic good in in like expressing your democratic will. But I did want to end quickly just to kind of emphasize what I think is. Like my takeaway or, or at least an important takeaway is like the tension as we've been talking about it between his kind of like deontological attachment to freedom, but then also his commitment to social justice. And I think like, you know, if he's true to his word, I think because as, as I read earlier from question 78, right, he says a just society has institutions that ensure as much as possible that everyone has the resources needed to be a free person. So like he kind of commits himself to this. He says that's the view he ascribes to neoclassical liberals, what he says he is. Um, and then I guess it just, I mean, it would be interesting to see whether he was, if he was confronted with empirical evidence to show that like the, the libertarian, uh, society would not give, uh, would not create those institutions. Um, then that would, I guess, reveal like to what extent he's actually more, uh, more of the engine of his view is from the deontological libertarian view, or whether it's from this kind of more consequentialist concern with social justice, um. And, you know, and I would say, like, I mean, for myself as a leftist, like, I really feel like a lot of my, my uh, motivation comes from these empirical questions about what's actually going to create these institutions that I, I mean, I agree with the way he phrases it, even that is going to make sure everyone can exercise their freedom in a meaningful way. And of course, I would also say that that should include civic freedom. And so I would agree with Matt. Um, so you know, I, w- I would, I, I would, probably, if I saw evidence that, like, I don't know, minimum wage or whatever, and he, I know he has a chapter about or talks about it briefly, actually created bad outcomes. I mean, I would change my position on that. So it would be interesting to know whether he would actually change his position if he was confronted with such uh, analogous evidence.
0: Well, we'll leave that an open question since Brendan's not that old, so I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more of him over the years. Um, so anyway, for our listeners at the Pill Pod uh, who are interested, again. You can check out brennan's book uh libertarianism what everyone needs to know honestly it's only i think like 150 short pages uh you can get through it in an afternoon or two just pour yourself a big pot of coffee not badly written uh we have a lot of problems with it as you've heard Uh, but you know readable book okay uh
2: stefan molyneux you should read it because it's
0: uh, (laughs) (laughs) all you you know libertarian bros out there take a look at this uh if you want some of the real deal uh you might decide to convert pretty fucking quickly Um, anyway also thanks a lot for coming on the show Uh, again Ben uh, it's always great to have you and I'm sure we'll be seeing you again in the future
1: sounds good